Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. I hope you weren't too sad by my very brief hiatus, but in the meantime I hope you enjoyed your holidays. I sure did. Today, my guest, and kicking off 2023, feels weird to say, is Zach Engel. We primarily talk about his score for the, I suppose, sci-fi thriller type film, Ultrasound. Zach's score here is really cool. It's a mixture of sort of modern synth, analog synth. We talk about sort of the various inspirations for that from more classic electronic musicians like Mort Garson, whose album Plantasia is classic, to more recent folks like Disasterpiece and Daniel Lopayton, or uh, his pseudonym Anahotrix Point Never. I think I said that right, but probably didn't. And then in the midst of it, there's a, a number of other aspects too. There's some operatic moments, some more uh, melodic aspects. There's a, a lot thrown in here that really drew my attention. I will say there are a couple very minor spoilers in the interview. Normally these aren't things that I'd point out, but the film is so much better if you go in and don't know a single thing. So twice you'll hear a chime and about five seconds later a very brief brief spoiler will come in. Now if you skip ahead 30 seconds or so when you hear the chime you'll miss it entirely. Not big plot points, not twists or anything, but like I said, it's a really good experience if you don't know what the heck is going on. That's how I went in, and <laughs> the whole time I was wondering what was happening. It was great. Of course, we go on a few other tangents. I, as I think is becoming more typical, spring a few abstract and unfair questions on Zach. So, for future guests, be warned that that's uh, in my bag of tricks now, my bag of questions. Now, of course, you can find out more about Zach and about Ultrasound online, on their websites, on social media, and you can do the same for me. And we're back on the normal bi-weekly schedule, and I hope your year is off to a good start. Now, sit back, and I hope you enjoy. Zach, I appreciate you joining me. How have you been? Uh, been well, been keeping busy. Yeah, gearing up for the holidays, but life is good here out in the studio. Yeah, right on. And and your studio is out in Maine. I mean, how did you get into film composing or media composing? Because like normally everyone doing that is, and it's a little easier being remote now, but like most people in the U.S. at least congregate New York or L.A. For sure. Yeah, and I I definitely had a um. I think some people would consider it brief, but a tenure in New York. I moved to Manhattan in 2011 and was working for a music studio that specialized in um, commercial post-production, audio post-production, like mixing and sound design. And they also did some commercial composition, which I had discovered was a good way to get a foot in the door in the film industry through an internship in Chicago, actually, at Comma Music, Comma Particle. They do composing and uh, like voiceover and post-production for a lot of commercial agencies and and then just through meeting commercial clients that were directing commercials because they wanted to direct films um, while I was in New York made a solid network there and then went freelance about three years after we moved and never looked back and from there it was just working with friends who were making shorts and then friends who were making features and the New York community definitely gave me the opportunities that gave me the confidence to 
stay freelance and then eventually in 2018 move out of the city up to Maine and move the studio out of a one bedroom and into a barn, which is a stellar upgrade. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. I bet, I bet, you know, out there there's a, a little less worry about ambient outside noise, things like that. Yeah, it's a uh, game changer. Yeah, absolutely. Right on. And you mentioned the New York community a little bit. Is that more of a turn of phrase, or was there truly a scoring, composing, sound design, post-production community out there that you felt a part of? I think probably a little bit of both, in honesty, but there was there was just a lot of overlap and a lot of luck in meeting good people through the work that I was doing to keep the lights on and then the work that everyone was doing out of passion. You know, I met a lot of great editors. Uh, Brock Bodell, who's the editor on Ultrasound, I met in New York because he was working at a post-production studio editing promos and commercials for Nickelodeon and VH1. He and I got to be buds there, discovered that we have a mutual love for film. We were actually in a psychedelic rock band together, and then he ended up being the editor on Ultrasound and gave my name to Rob Schroeder, and here we go. So it's connections like that that you know I held on to and just loved nurturing while we lived in New York and Brock now lives in Berlin, and I think he's coming back because he's about to have another baby. And anyway, he's uh, he's just a good buddy, and it was a lot of connections like that that I made while we were all living in New York, which for me and for a lot of the connections I made is sort of a transitory place where it's like you come, you put in your time, and then you get called called away by life, whatever that is, kids or just a change. And that was what it was for me. And the luck of being able to pull those connections with me to Maine was the best. Just living up here and still getting phone calls from people in New York. I think it is true that there's a community there that still just likes to work with who they know, even if who they know is four hours north. Right. Sure. So you mentioned kind of pulling that community or that network with you. Have you still been able to organically expand that network too, being out there? Yeah, it's definitely different. There's just smaller pools up here, but COVID was the silver lining for that. So many people reach out to people who aren't local anymore, which is amazing. And I found that there's new clients that I'm getting that maybe have a studio hub in New York or LA that are reaching out to people who live all over. And yeah, there's Parma Recordings is based out of Rye, New Hampshire. Bob Lord was my first contact out in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is 12 minutes away. And he was very sweet and was like, hey, there's a community here. We do recordings for you know orchestras and musicians. We also have our hand in film music. They've won a few Grammys recently. And <laughs> Bob actually connected me with the Zagreb Festival Orchestra. And they did um, some orchestra recordings for me about three years ago. I was doing maybe more than that now, music for the Kennedy Center's production of How to Catch a Star. And I made the connection for that here. It was local. It wasn't New York or L.A. So there's gems to be found. And I think hopefully I'll keep finding them. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, it sounds like you're actually getting out there making them. And I think that's the key to all of it, You know, knowing that it's not just going to magically come to you. It's totally. Got to tell the universe what you want. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. go yeah. out there and, and try and get it. Yeah. You mentioned this briefly, but can you go a little more in depth into how you got connected with Rob and got involved in Ultrasound? Totally. Brock Bodell, the editor on the film, he and I are very good buds. He wrote and directed a short film called Grief that uh, is available online through, um, you can find it on YouTube now. And Rob was involved in that film and I scored Grief and 
through that, Rob sort of learned my name and what I could do music-wise. Grief is another sort of bit thriller, bit horror, a little bit of that psychological turmoil. When Rob was looking into composers for ultrasound, Brock was able to put my name in the ring, and I ended up writing two demo tracks, just like, hey, this is what I think I could do for your film. Um, And I sent them to Rob, and I think he was also talking to few other composers at the time so I didn't know what the odds were but between Brock's vote of confidence and the music that I sent to Rob just on a whim it worked out and I'm so grateful that it did yeah no it's that's great and at at that point when you wrote those demo tracks and then eventually got involved in the film how much of the film did you know about and what point did you get brought in And, and I asked in part because the film itself really revolves around sound manipulation and tones and things like that. Totally. If I'm remembering right, I think what happened was I had, you know, a couple phone calls with Brock, just catching up, him talking to me about the project, being like, hey, there's a chance I can get you involved in this. This is a little bit about what the film thematically is about. And then I think I had a call with the director just to shoot the shit, get to know one another a little bit, talk about his feelings about sound and inspiration he was listening to a lot of like mid 20th century electronic music like john hassel mort garson musicians that i hadn't spent a lot of time listening to and now love because of the conversations that rob and i had he can go so deep like you get on a phone call with rob schroeder you an hour later you're talking about some tangent about music that's wonderful but it's like he can go really deep on his influences and inspiration but through talking to him i got a sense for the role that sound was going to play in the film, the aesthetic of it, Connor Stickshulte, who wrote the graphic novels and the screenplay, which I loved the fact that he was able to write the adaptation for film of his story. And then just from that and then seeing, I think I got to see a really rough edit and I was able to look at a couple sequences that by the time I saw them, they were not too far off from what they are in the final film and sort of score some vibe to those. Like, I think I did one cue that ended up being used. It's called Jailbreak on the soundtrack for when Cindy and Glenn are trying to break out of the facility of the lab, and then one when Cindy is getting sort of questioned by Shannon and she's going into her memory, and it was a bit more of like a classic sort of motif vibe, something a bit more of an earworm, a little more melodic. And then I just sent those as like, A, B, here's two vibe options like let's gut check these and then it was it was a green light from there oh nice and from there on out what were the conversations like with rob what was the the direction that he was pushing towards the music and the the reactions of those initial vibe checks i was psyched the initial reactions were like this is really cool he i think was just really excited to get into playing around with electronic instrumentation I was looking before this interview, I was going back through some of my project files and I was looking through those first few cues I sent. And it's like just 20 channels of layered Moog synths and Prophet synths and just like going for it. And just like full send on, let's layer some some crazy synth textures and see what we can come up with. And the film, while the sort of heavy electronic score, there are those really like heavily electronic textures on there there is always this sense of analog. Like, even the physical tech in the film feels very like a glowing red push button on, like, a giant pseudo 
Russian looking console and it's not a touchscreen. It's not minority report. It's like this thing is very tactile. Like the buttons would go ka-chunk. The sliders would have like a very tactile action to them on any like boards or computers or whatever they're using. So keeping that sense of analog, not only with the visual aesthetic of the film, but with the soundtrack was important. And I think that's one of the reasons that those mid 20th century electronic composer references for music mort carson um john hassel were so great because it was a lot of like it's theremin it's a lot of analog synth and then there are these elements of piano and elements of live string instrumentation chromatic percussion and we carried that into the score with you know i was sampling kalimbas and just sounds around the studio that then i was running through like slate and ash granular synthesis whatever you'd call it in their their software which is so cool and and yeah keeping that feeling of like this isn't just digital there's definitely a sense of analog physical reactionary electronics happening yeah and that was an interesting aspect of the sound because i think a lot of times when people hear electronic it's either like hyper modern or mm-hmm. it's like an 80s throwback synth style i do think a lot of people forget that electronic music dates back 70 years or so and you hear something like talking about Mort Garson here like Plantasia and it's like mm-hmm. just bizarre that it came out I don't know what it was 50 some odd years ago or so yeah totally I remember when Rob first was just cluing me into his inspirations for music and I was like wow this is old and this is it feels modern at the same time like I feel like I'm hearing things that I like would to me, if you told me this came out last year, I'd be like, yep, I believe you. <laughs> well, and, and so I think taking that together, it, it gives the score an interesting sound and also a strange sense of place for the movie, too. Because, like you said, having the, the machinery you see on screen be, like, tactile and not something ultra-modern. And mm-hmm. so it, it doesn't feel like everything is hypermodern but it's also it doesn't feel like it's a period film taking place you know in the like 90s or something either it's ambiguous yeah 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 yeah, exactly yeah the like arts like hypnosis tone generators are they look like walkie-talkie sort of devices like they've got physical knobs that are being turned and red led lights that are glowing you know it's not inconspicuous like a you know like a wi-fi router or like a a, a wi-fi extender which is like some sleek little box and I think that speaks to like to the fact that this generated as a graphic novel where it's like, what would you rather look at on a page? Like I'd rather see something that's got, you know, a speaker grill on it with a knob with a little like white line indicating where am I on the dial versus something that's got, you know, a touch sensor like a screen on an iPhone where it's like, that's just a brick. So I'd much rather see something engaging. And I think the film honored that beautifully. Yeah. And talking about the ambiguity in the sound and kind of merging these various stylings and periods were there any more recent composers musicians that also acted as an an inspiration or that at least you appreciated may have been like subconscious inspirations working on the score absolutely 100 percent Daniel O'Payton's score for Uncut Gems was huge. That was like that. And then, I mean, Good Time and Uncut Gems were incredible on me. For first listen, first watch, I I couldn't believe it. Good Time was just <laughs> just full throttle from opening credits <laughs> yeah. to end credits. I love that movie. Um, 
and then uh, Cliff Martinez and Disaster Piece, Rich Freeland, who I'm not positive if he and Rob were talking about ultrasound at any great length. Um, his name was sort of in the ephemera around the, the film, but he kindly exchanged. I sent him like fan mail in like 2015 <laughs> after I played Hyper Light Drifter, um, which he scored, which is a sort of a retro feeling 16-bit video game that came out in the mid 2000 teens but his combination of like uh, an upright piano with just layers and layers of both analog and you know soft synths it's beautiful and there's overlap I think in the his vibe and Daniel Lopatin's vibe but he is definitely a contemporary Daniel Lopatin's a contemporary Cliff Martinez and then um, Danny Elfman who obviously mm. he goes way back but he's obviously still working all the time Thomas Newman Danny Elfman those more classic orchestral romantic film scores that I love and having the this ambiguity between the electronic sense of ultrasound and then the analog sense of ultrasound gave me the opportunity for cues like through the window on this soundtrack where that feels very much like a Danny Elfman cue where it's like the melody in that is a total earworm for me like I can hear that when I leave the studio still just kicking around in my head and yet it's got that like undercurrent of those bubbling synth you know modular just what is the sound i'm hearing underneath you know a very danny elfman-esque melody on a mock theremin it's not a real theremin sorry <laughs> <laughs> um, now yeah did you you know was someone like danny elfman one of your early like film music memories and that like kind of got you in that path or is it sort of coincidental at this point uh, definitely, yeah. There was a moment in college where I realized that film music might be a thing for me because I realized, oh, all of my favorite movies have the same like two composers. <laughs> and then I was like, ah, maybe I should look into that. Where I was like, yeah, okay, Thomas Newman, and then Danny Elfman, and then I, you know there was um oh man, um blanking on the name now, um embarrassed the Fountain who scored the Fountain. Um, um, that was uh, that was Clint Mansell. Thank you, Clint Mansell. Yeah, Him, Clint Mansell was huge. And then I just sort of realized, ah, oh, okay, let me diagnose this a little bit. And so, yeah, there's a lot of that in the scores that I've written. You know, there's definitely calling back to, okay, this is a moment, I think, where I can look at how Thomas Newman would approach this and, you know, steal and then uh, grow. And then eventually, two films later, do it in my own way type deal. Yeah. And that's an interesting point or or concept like is there a line between borrowing ideas or being inspired by someone or or multiple people and creating a sound that's your own and and do you think like having your own sound can still have clear or implicit inspirations from other people yeah it's always a blurry line right i think i think good artists borrow and great artists steal and I think it takes a long time until you sound like yourself. And then mm. when I don't think I necessarily sound like myself, um, like if you listened through my any any of my previous films, everything, I'm sure there's things that we're like, oh yeah, I can kind of see Zach in there. But there's a lot of experimentation. I feel very young in my career here where there's just a lot of experimentation, learning on the job, which I believe is the, the way to do it. Say yes and then figure it out. And that was still true when I was scoring ultrasound like there was a lot of like 
yeah, I know how to go nuts with experimenting with synths. Do I know how to get this exact end result that I'm hearing in my head? Like, I'm not the edge from U2. His whole thing is like, I hear something in my head and I want to figure out how to do it on the guitar. It's like, yeah, that's kind of what it is. And I think you can't be afraid to rip somebody off. Obviously, you can't just plagiarize things, but you can't be afraid to rip off a technique or to say like, aha, Danny Lowe Payton's got a Moog one and he's making these sounds with it. So maybe if I find a similar tool, I can make something beautiful myself that isn't uncut gems. People build houses with the same hammers. So it's like, why can't I make my own film score with the same synth? So I think there's always going to be a little bit of overlap, but I'd be psyched if I heard someone talking about their score and being like, yeah, I listened to this thing and you know Zach Engel wrote this thing and I wanted to sound like, I'm, how would you not just feel great? So I, yeah, I think always overlap. <laughs> yeah, I love Did that. I answer yeah. the question? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> now, part of that too, like mentioning wanting to find different sounds and experiment and go wild. And, and you talk about earlier sampling some instruments and then running them through processors and oscillators and things like that to get mm -hmm. different results. Is that something that you think is a product of the particularities of this movie or is the search for sound we'll call it something that exists with your sound palette and, and your process more broadly yeah i think this film was probably a happy coincidence where what appeals to me and how i currently really like to compose worked really well for what this film called for bob burrito who is the sound designer on ultrasound he and i had a bunch of conversations once we were farther into post-production where it was like okay where does the score end and the sound design begin and just watching the film there's probably things where any viewer who doesn't know the process behind the curtain would be like that's definitely sound design and it's actually nope that was me doing something weird <laughs> with the synths and someone would be like oh that's definitely score and bob would be like that that'd be me like i'm i'm sound designing there so my desire to make up for a lack of being able to perform exactly what I wanted to perform live on an instrument. So, hey, let's sample something and then I can build a sound that, you know, achieves what I'm after if I can't just sit down at the piano and play what I'm trying to play or sit down at a synth and, and execute exactly what I'm after. That desire to still build a sound that comes together through a bit more tinkering resulted in, you know, a mix of working with synths, a mix of recording things around the studio. Um, I've got an upright piano behind me that I used on a lot, not only the sound of the piano, but like pedal mechanisms, the hammers on the strings, the sound of me getting off the bench and walking around the studio, like all of that ended up sort of working its way into the little nuance of the score. And then things where, okay, there's actual auditory equipment in the scene that's diegetic. How much of what we've created musically can work is that a fair amount and then talking to Bob about okay I don't want to step on your toes in terms of the design so take the score take the stems and and go to town and then once we hear a version where both of us our voices are in there let's talk about what's working and yeah so I think it, it, it was a happy it was a happy not accident but just like a happy coincidence that the film called for a level of tinkering that I think even someone who could sit down at any of the instruments that we used as tools and just completely execute on, all right, I know I need to set up a sine wave. I know I want this LFO. I know I want this effects chain. Great. They would have been able to do this in their own way, but I think tinkering was called for and helped. Interesting. And yeah. and it's spot on about the 
ambiguity between score and sound design. And some of that I mentioned earlier, I mean, both of us have about how much like frequencies play into the film and having arts boxes and the like labs itself that'll just like play these frequencies. That's more obvious, but then shadows of that appear throughout and you start wondering, like, oh, where does sound design or score end and begin? What were some of the conversations that you and Bob had as far as finding that balance? And were there any instances where one or the other of you didn't feel like your voice was present enough in the mix? We had no, no to the last part. We it was it the the collaboration was really lovely, and um, I haven't scored a ton of films, but I've scored enough films to know that there's a certain point where you need to pride gets put aside for the yeah. sake of everyone coming together to make the thing. The collaboration is almost always going to be better than just you getting your way the whole way till the end. So the conversations between Bob and I were very collaborative, and just because of the nature of the process and how this goes in post-production you know music was down to the wire and then there was even a thinner wire that bob was then working with where it was like okay we've had a bunch of time to play with the music for people to get attached to the score in its musical moments and in its more design focused moments and then bob came in and respected that respected the crap out of that and i think he thought that what we were had built was really cool and he and I then talked a bit about what was missing. And, and I didn't focus while I was composing on, okay, what am I scoring for the diegetic or the sound of all of the machinery in the lab or even what the auditory cues are for, oh, okay, we're hearing someone in a state of hypnosis versus someone who's living in reality. There are those kind of like clicking sounds that you hear that are part of the sound design and not part of the score. And Bob, I think just aptly, because he's a, a professional and, and very good at what he does, went in and saw, okay, here are the holes. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to fill, you know, fill the gaps in what, what storytelling and what elevating is left to do with the sound. And then he did it in a really respectful way of the score. And it just worked. It danced together, the, the sound design and the score. And um, he didn't feel like he wanted to come in and rewrite the score. He wanted to come in and elevate what we had done, um, which I think he did beautifully. And this might take us on a slight tangent, but it's something that kind of came into my mind while you were talking. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's in large part about how the the frequencies and the clicks that we hear in the film or that are present diegetically are meant to either initiate or stop like suggestion on various characters. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a connection between that what we see in the film and what it's doing and like the broader role of music in a film both are meant to give a, a suggestion or a you know a, a slight push that we're maybe not supposed to be fully aware of totally yeah i'm studying film music in school there are a lot of conversations over are the best scores the ones that you don't notice versus the ones that hit you over the head with the opening credit scroll I think it's both. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think in this film in particular, there's a lot of inspiration pulled from the minimalism of electronic music like John Hassel or uh, Mort Garson, and that leaves a lot of breathing room for dialogue, for sound design, and for the audience to forget that there's music going on. There's this long sequence in the middle of the film where Shannon is becoming aware of 
you know, what they're doing. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but at this point, the film's been out for forever. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, there's this long sequence, and on the, the soundtrack, it's split into two tracks, Waves 1 and 2. And there is this just slow, repeating ostinato on, it's the piano in my space, and then there's, you know, some, some more synthetic layers on top of that. But that cue for me is one that is like, I want you to forget that it's happening while the scene's mm. going on, and I want it to almost, I want your pulse to sort of just regulate to the slow and steady tone there in a similar way to what you'd expect to be happening to the characters on screen, where they're unaware that they're under these states of suggestion. And in complete contrast to that, the jailbreak cue or, or at the end, I want people to be rocking out. Like, I want there to be that sense of, just high octane, super fun tension that you get in movies like Good Time and that Daniel Lopatin is a complete master at crafting. Um, so both. And I think that's what I love about film music is it can do both and it should do both. I think that's where, at least in my view, the fact that some people look down on the electronics and film music and particularly the use of tones and textures rather than mm. just like pure melody the entire time they each can do similar things and different things you take this score for instance there is a lot of tonality going on mm -hmm. but then melody whether it be something more robust or like a short motif that's repeated is also used that, that each have their own place and when a melody comes up or when it's one of those handful of sequences where it's really just picture and music and there's not much other sound going on and it comes to the forefront that pushes the audience so much more so i i appreciate the balance and i think it does show the maybe not necessity because you can do it in various ways but like how well you can utilize those different techniques i'm with you 100 percent. yeah i think you're i think you're right on and i think as someone who grew up listening to composers who i I probably think a lot of people think of as pretty traditional, like the John Williams, the Thomas Newmans. I am definitely not a traditionalist as an artist or as a composer. And I hear these huge mainstream composers writing motifs that are not the traditional motifs, like the Joker motif from The Dark Knight, just that one sustained violin tone. It's like, who's going to call that a motif? 60 years ago like I don't think that I, maybe I'm wrong but definitely not the, I think the majority of people who are just studying film music or music in general would hear that and be like yeah that's enough to be a theme but when you pair it with a character you pair it with a scenario that comes back over and over again in a film it can become a motif and I think you're exactly right where you know there are probably people who are watching films that use more tonal ambiguous sonic textures and they're like this you know, I don't feel anything or I'm not drawn to this. And that's fine. It, every film isn't for every audience, but I think they can absolutely be motifs and I think they can be as effective as a lyrical string soloist or piano. Well, and I, I appreciate that view. I think like both of us have an enjoyment for things that are, take film music more traditional, but it's oh, also yeah. exciting to hear things that are challenging. And even if you don't like it, it's, I, I love hearing something that, is a bit unexpected or surprising or makes you scratch your head and go, I don't I don't know where this is coming from. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I'll watch Meet Joe Black 50 more times in my life, I'm sure. <laughs> and I'll love the score every time. Um, but yeah, then I'll go watch Uncut Gems and be like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> yeah, so cool. I do want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, talking about 
some of the music you're using in the middle of the film where it's these ostinatos that eventually you want the viewer, the listener to be almost unaware that music's going. And mm-hmm. I, I did notice, like, even though the film is only about an hour 45, mm-hmm. the score release is, I think, just over an hour. Mm-hmm. And maybe that worked on me as well. It wouldn't surprise me, but it doesn't sound like the film is wallpapered with music. So I was surprised that the score release is that Thank long. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. That is something I'm very self-conscious about. When I'm scoring, I always have a separate project where I just have like just a string out of the score. And I'm literally looking at the gaps between the audio clips. Mm. I'm like, okay, how much silence have I? Because you have this weird, I shouldn't say you, I have this weird false feeling where I'm like, okay, I'm scoring the film. I should at least have music for everything. Where it's like, no, that's not, that's not (laughs) the way. Um, But, but there is that feeling of like, well, it's not done until there's enough sort of visual clips that I'm looking at in my project file against the film video file. But that's something I, I look at and I'm like, okay, well, great. How much breathing room is there? How much silence is there? And it's a huge compliment that it doesn't feel like it's it's just overloaded. So thank you. And always something I'm conscious of and trying not to do too much of and always throwing paint at the canvas to start and then pulling away and realizing I could do this with so much less. And I think a lot of times... I don't realize how good of an idea I've already come up with. And I'm just like, I should just expand on that. Like, I should just theme and variation this instead of trying to come up with five new ideas. And I think that's something a lot of the composers that I look up to do so well. So thank you. That's a huge compliment that it didn't feel overloaded. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think part of that, too, is also a testament to the film, the sound design as well, where there's a lot of things that are distinct, but it's also like, things aren't really busy or overloaded either. Between that and truly watching something, turning all the lights off, throwing the volume up, and letting yourself get immersed and falling into it. It's a ride. This film is a ride, totally. The for, it, Big payoff, and a fair amount of work to do before the payoff, I would say. There's a lot to follow, there's a lot to track, there's a lot of patient development in this film that I think is rewarded mm-hmm. handsomely by the end, but I think like you're saying, there's definitely, it's a well-crafted, both visually in the edit with the sound design. And then thank you for saying that it didn't feel overscored, but I think yeah, everything needed to leave room. And, uh, and yeah, it was a delicate, delicate balance for everybody, I'm sure. Yeah, I bet. And you know, I, I do want to jump back really quick. Do you think yep. that as a film composer, with it being your job to put music into the film, that as part of that, you feel like there's a drive to put more and more in there rather than write 10 minutes of music and be like, yeah, you know what? I think that's it. And like the rest of the film can be scoreless sound design. One of the things that that makes me think of that is uh, I was looking at the new sight and sound poll and I watched uh, Beau Travail, which is like ninth or 10th on there, uh, a late 90s Claire Denis film. And there's probably like 15 minutes of score in there. And mm-hmm. it, it always surprises me hearing something like that than other films that have an hour and a half of music. And when mm-hmm. done right, both can be very effective, but they're just so polar opposites. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Um, and I, I think I, I don't know if I'm more impressed by one or the other, but I definitely take note of films that use less music that I feel are just wonderful, wonderful experiences to watch. 
I'd have to look at the actual score to see what it, what how, how much music is actually in there. Um, but Midnight in Paris is a movie I always think of because it is that Stefan Rembel track that comes back over and over again. For a track that comes back over and over again, it is a bit of a, a looping feeling track. I love Bistro Fada. That, that track is beautiful. But it's very you hear it once, you hear it the second time, and you're already singing along with it. Hmm. And they use that track, I don't know how many times in that film, but it is like, Okay, yep, I'm excited to be hearing this melody again, this 30 seconds or however much we get it in each iteration. And to me, that is so beautiful when when a film can do that and it can do it with minimal material and leaving such a huge impact. That I mean, quality over quantity, where it's like, right. yeah, if, you're, if your quality is super high and your placement is perfect and the director understands how to take risks and understands, you know, how to talk about music with a composer, and the composer isn't out to just, like, make an hour-long soundtrack that they're excited to put on an LP or whatever. They Go for it. Yeah, but it's also such a gamble, because if by the second time you hear it, you're like, all right, we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're 20 minutes in the film, and I've got this again, like, mix mm-hmm. it up. Yep. And it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. I'm sure there yeah. are people who watch Midnight in Paris who are like, oh, could they have picked another track? <laughs> but it's like, for <laughs> me, I'm like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want. Yeah, so... I could talk for an hour just about that topic of just like how minimal can you get and, and stay effective and the just whole idea of quality over quantity. And yeah. Well, we'll, we'll yeah. keep the conversation to a minimum. Cause I don't know if, uh, <laughs> if people want an extra hour just on that topic. No, but yeah, I don't think maybe, so. maybe um, that'll really. be a bonus episode sometime <laughs> in the future. You know where to find me. Um, but yeah, no. So, you know, as we're wrapping up, I did want to ask about the remix track that, is at the end of the score release. And yeah, partially, I, yeah. I actually uh, interviewed Sophie Ian's wife like oh, yeah. a year or so ago to, to lead off my second season. So I always am drawn even more to seeing either of them on something. But like you don't see remixes very often in score releases in general. So how did that come up? Sure. Um, Ian and I got introduced through an old buddy of mine. I actually went to high school with Xander Singh. Um, who is buddies with Ian, and they were in Passion Pit together and then were living in L.A. together and scoring films. I don't know how much together, but at least as as peers, both scoring films in the same city. Xander, from a distance, you know, introduced Ian and I, and, and Ian, as someone who I look up to and and his wife Sophie look up to both of them and and Xander honestly they're just great people to send emails to and and chat with and celebrate their work and congratulate them and I have no problem emailing someone to ask hey do you want to work on something together and a couple of years ago I released an album called Leroy Figment which is a it's an EP of music I wrote for my son and I was looking for someone to help me mix it and I reached out to Ian because I thought he's got a daughter he's someone who I think does really cool work and I'd love to collaborate with on a, on a deeper level and I was like hey would you want to get involved helping me mix these and he was all all for it and so he and I worked on that together and you know got a bit closer through that and then when I was scoring ultrasound I was just thinking about okay the score is super cool I'd love to I'm just thinking about ways Rob and I were thinking about ways of like what would make this even more special what are ways we can you know celebrate what we've made here a bit more and then I thought well maybe Ian would be down to work on something with me and and just groove on on something we've made and I sent him the score and was like hey we'd love it if you wanted to remix something here we think your voice would be a really fun addition to what we've created and just like a really fun 
victory lap to take on on the score and and have a just just a, a fun just a jam on on one of the tracks and he was again um it's just wonderful and said, absolutely like this sounds awesome and he put together his remix and we listened to it and we thought it was great and we were like yeah absolutely we're gonna put this on the soundtrack it's it's good too just for the score which has you know recognizable themes but it is also <laughs> i told my mom i'm like you're not gonna like it it's a hard listen. It's an active listening score. You can't just put this on and just chill. It's like you are listening to the score. And so to be able to put a track on there that also felt a bit more like, okay, I'm bobbing my head. Yeah. I know where to place this. And Ian's so good. And, you know, he is such a versatile composer that it was just like, yeah, you'll be able to take 50 layers of, of Moog and Prophet and make it sound like a tune. So he, uh, <laughs> he did, and I'm so grateful. And, yeah, really happy that's part of the score. Yeah, no, it was... It was uh cool to see cool to listen to it it's interesting because it obviously follows along organically but also is like you said it it is a tune it's something that is more rhythmic that you can just bop along to also um but like doesn't sound disparate either it fits oh thank thank you i'm glad yeah and i think he was yeah he kept so many of our original layers in there and did it i think thank you that's a big compliment again too i'm, I'm glad it feels at home, organic with the rest of the score. And you know, with with that, I'll uh, I'll wrap us up before I say anything that uh, might kill the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yes. But no, uh, Zach. Thanks again for joining me. It was. I'll have to throw a I'll throw a spoiler warning at the front end of this, just because, like, I know the the film's been out for a little while, but going in and watching it, knowing literally nothing about the movie, was. Mm-hmm excellent because partway through my wife and i turned to each other and we're like i don't know what's going on and what's i don't happening? know where this is going but amazing like, i'm i'm in um awesome so i'll, I'll warn people because you know, I, I don't want any of that to get spoiled like i think that's the appreciate best way to watch it. it yeah i appreciate it nick this has been super fun and yeah um thank you for listening to the score watching the film and being up to talk about it I'm psyched